Hey there and welcome into Formation, uh, a new episode and a new series in which we're going to be talking about a theology of social justice. Uh, there are, as it currently stands, at least five um, sessions or episodes we're going to do around a theology of social justice and this is the first and today we are looking at the God of the oppressed and I want to talk about three things in particular. I want to talk about this idea of the God of the oppressed, I want to talk about the theme of liberation that we see throughout the biblical story. And I also want to talk about the way we think about sin, which is obviously everybody's favorite subject. So um, so before we jump into the, the biblical narrative and this idea of the God of the oppressed, I briefly want to mention uh, why this conversation around the theology of social justice is necessary and helpful from my perspective. And uh, if you've thought uh, about faith much, uh, and if you've listened to this podcast before or or been engaged with these kind of conversations, it probably won't come as any surprise to you that I think it's true that the Western Christian tradition in particular, and that, I guess that's my context, so that's the one I can speak to more um, appropriately, uh, the Western Christian tradition has tended towards the separation of the gospel, of salvation, of spiritual matters from more social and public issues, so social order, law, justice, and public life. And, um, and this goes a, a long way back, and in many respects, perhaps it's, it's shaped by Greek philosophy, where, where spiritual matters were seen as quite distinct from uh, social matters. Um, the, the spiritual world and the physical world are kind of separate domains. Uh, and Augustine, who's often considered the father of Western theology, you know, he speaks about the ultimate good is ultimately eternal life. And if we live in anticipation of that eternal life, yes, that should lead to a moral life in the here and now. But that kind of change and transformation in the here and now did have limits, and especially when it came to the empire, when it came to the powers of the state and so on. And so for Augustine, personally, there's this kind of ultimate good of, of eternal life. Um, but in the meantime, the powers of the emperor, empire are a necessary evil to maintain law and order and peace. Uh, and so while he spoke at times of injustice, he, he maintained, I think, that, the, that challenging injustice should never really come at the expense of the social order. You know, So... so the peace that social order maintains, the kind of stability that's, that the, the social and political order maintains, even if it's quite oppressive, um, shouldn't be disrupted in, in the pursuing of um, Christian justice because ultimately the empire has to do what it has to do to keep things in order. And, you know, you can kind of understand that mentality, I guess. But what it does do over time is it, it kind of limits the ability for people of faith to speak to issues of social order, of social and public life, uh, because it's seen as not being the domain of spirituality. And, and and we see a similar kind of thread in Martin Luther, who's one of the big um, initiators of the Protestant Reformation. You know, so again, this kind of split where the gospel is related to, to heaven and to God uh, and to us and God, and public law is related to life on earth. And so ultimately, you know, we should we should always obey the powers that be because... That's related to the law on earth, and that's the domain of earthly laws, and the message of the gospel really has a little little impact. So there's this kind of separation between the two, you know. So uh, there was a, a time during Luther's life when the peasants and, and serfs were having a bit of a revolt, and they were arguing for their full humanity. Can you believe it? Uh, arguing for a sense of equality, and, and Luther writes to them. You know, this this famous uh, Protestant reformer who writes to these serfs and says. Uh, says this, a quote here, You assert that no one is to be the serf of anyone else because Christ has made us all free. 
Did not Abraham and the other patriarchs and prophets have slaves? A slave can be a Christian and have Christian freedom in the same way that a prisoner or a sick man is a Christian and yet be free. Your claim would make all men equal and turn the spiritual kingdom of Christ into a worldly external kingdom, and that is impossible. A worldly kingdom cannot exist without an inequality of persons, some being free, some imprisoned, some lords, some subjects. Uh, end quote. So you can see here that, that for Luther, firstly, he can't really conceive of a world in which uh, there aren't slaves and subjects, and, uh, and that's perhaps a problem in itself. But secondly, uh, he sees this kind of equality that they're arguing for as, as turning the spiritual kingdom, where we're all equal, into a worldly kingdom, which is impossible. So he says, look, you can be free in Christ, but still be a slave. And so don't bother trying to change your slave situation, um, because you're free in Christ. Um, now, if you're a slave and you have no way out of your situation, being free in Christ might be a powerful personal transformative experience for you but to use that as a as a reason why a slave should not be able to seek their freedom or or full equality or full humanity that becomes a, a problem right and in the end uh, luther when speaking to those who were in power in the state you know said of the rebelling presence he said uh, he told those in power to smite slay and stab secretly or openly these rebelling presents uh, peasants who he called mad dogs right so there's this division between the gospel in social and political order, where one has very little to do with the other, um, follow the laws regardless, um, kind of suck it up, because at least you're free in Christ and you'll go to heaven when you die. So there's that kind of thing going on in the Western Christian tradition. And if we add to that the move in Western society in general from a collective mindset towards the hyper-individualism of, of the modern world, then, then what we find is the idea that religion is very much a private matter of personal meaning, but has has not very much to say about the world outside. So as we talk about this theology of social justice, I want to offer some ways of thinking about Christian faith that push back against this kind of unhelpful separation and division, and instead perhaps invite us to see that justice and equality and liberation and resistance actually lie at the very heart of the Christian gospel itself. All right, so I want to begin with the biblical narrative and the kind of God we find there, and, and the kind of people we find there too. And the place to begin is in the beginning, funnily enough. Uh, but at the beginning of the Old Testament story is, is really the Exodus. Um, Genesis is like a prequel, you know, if you're a Narnia fan. Uh, Genesis is like the magician's nephew. Um, I don't know if that's a great example, but anyway, I grew up with Narnia. Um, so Genesis is like a, a prequel, a, a sort of a how did we get here kind of story. But Exodus is the main origin story that Israel as a nation tells about itself. And there are lots of things we could get into, you know, on, on the Exodus story about what's literal versus metaphor and history versus mythology and all, all of that kind of stuff. But uh, I think for what we need to talk about here, we just need to approach it as the narrative that it is, and particularly how this narrative helped the nation of Israel to make sense of their own identity. And, uh, and they are gathering this story together in the form that we have it, or cl at least close to the form that we have it now, much later on when they are, they've been through their kind of history as a, as a nation and as a kingdom, and then they've been destroyed uh, by Babylon. They've been carried off, many of them, into exile or scattered around the ancient Near East. And so Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the, the wall around their city is torn down, right? So they don't know what the future holds. And in this place and at this time, they decide to tell their story. Um, it's kind of a, the whole thing is a bit of a how did we get here kind of story. And, um, and, and the central narrative around which that whole Old Testament story pivots and moves is the story of the Exodus. So 
let's recap a couple of aspects of that without working our way through it in detail and then and then see what that holds for us in this conversation. So just in terms of scene setting, we've got a bunch of slaves in Egypt, right, and they're being used in forced labor uh, to do work on behalf of the Egyptian empire. They've been in this situation for a long time by the time we pick up the story, many hundreds of years. Uh, in the ancient world, the gods are on the side of the powerful, typically speaking, uh, and the more powerful you are, that probably says the more sort of powerful and impressive your god is, and, and vice versa. So, um, so the gods are on the side of those with power. In Egypt's story, then the gods are on the side of the slave owners, the slavers, right, the Egyptians, and um, and that's an important point to note because that's that's the generally accepted norm. And then we kind of get used to reading the story where God turns up on the side of the slaves. But that's a, a radical departure from the way in which ancient Near Eastern people thought about the gods. And so uh, here they are, they're in Egypt, they're slaves in forced labor. The gods are on the other side. The gods are with the slave owners. The pharaoh, if you like, the emperor, is the closest you get to the divine in the ancient Near East. Uh, some of the kings and pharaohs and emperors you know, were considered semi-divine or somewhat divine. And, um, and so the odds are kind of stacked against you here. And so when the book of Exodus begins early in the story, we find this very contrasting image of, of a different kind of god. And, uh, and in the story, this god is revealed at the burning bush as having the name Yahweh uh, to Moses. So Yahweh is, is seen as a radical departure from other ancient Near Eastern gods in this fact. Now, there are some similarities, um, but in this particular um, way, there's this real distinction with Yahweh, which is that Yahweh is, um, is hearing the cry of the oppressed. Yahweh is a god who acts on behalf of the slaves and the powerless. So in Exodus 3, you know, when, when God is talking to Moses, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, he goes on uh, later on to say, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So in this story, this, this narrative that, that is the central pivot for the Old Testament, the central way that the Israelite people understand God is the one who hears the cry of the oppressed and who will act to liberate them from their oppression. And that, of course, is the way the story unfolds. Uh, and even if you, if you read through the Exodus story and all of the plagues that get, uh, descend upon Egypt, right, um, there is this deep symbolism to each of those plagues. They're specifically targeted at, uh, at particular divinities of Egypt's empire, you know, as if to say, your gods who are on the side of the powerful oppressors are no match for this god Yahweh who's on the side of the oppressed. And, um, and you know, the, the story is quite fantastical and, and, and you know, amazing. Um, but perhaps one of the things that, that's most fantastical about it is this idea that the slaves have, have this kind of powerful god on their side. Um, and so, this story of liberation becomes, as I say, the central theme for the entire Old Testament. And perhaps this shouldn't surprise us, because when the Old Testament is put together, they are in this experience of violent oppression and exile. So they're reminding one another of the kind of God they believe in and where their story started. Um, and so, so far we have these two big ideas. God is on the side of the slaves and the oppressed, and that God is about liberation. 
And, um, and this story becomes one of the predominant ways that God self-identifies in the Old Testament. So uh, all the way through the story, right through to the prophets who come a long time later, when the prophets continue speaking to the people about God, they often, be, you know, when they speak on behalf of the Lord, they often begin with something like, I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery in Egypt and into a land. You know, there's this, uh, you see that kind of refrain over and over and over again, reminding them both of who God is and also where their story originated and who they were. And, and in fact, this becomes a way of calling them back to their own story, especially when they turn from being slaves who are liberated to becoming slave owners themselves. They become the oppressors. Um, they decide they want a king. They want an empire. They want slaves. And when they start to oppress and suppress the suffering among them, the prophets would rise up and say, do you not remember who the God you claim to serve is? Do you not remember where your story began? This God is on the side of the oppressed and is in the business of liberation. And uh, and and this theme is used to keep reminding them not only of their own history of liberation, but that that history means that they need to pay attention to how they are living and, and behaving in the present. Now, um, one of the questions I think that that should come to us, especially for those who find themselves in a relatively privileged spot in life. And so, you know, if, if you are economically relatively comfortable, if you are um, perhaps for other reasons, maybe is, uh, for, for ethnic, cultural, gendered reasons, find yourself having a pretty good ride in life, then a real challenge arises when we come to read these stories. Because what we're taught to do a lot is to identify with God's people in the stories. So if you're a person of faith, then you read the scriptures and you identify yourself with God's people. But what do you do when the, whole, when the story of the Old Testament in many respects is written from the perspective of oppression and the underside of power and the perspective of the losers, we might say? We've said before, that before on this podcast, right? That, that the scriptures are a story told from the perspective of those who apparently lose and yet there's there's some deep and profound insight here. But what do you do when you're you're kind of you your identity is is really caught up in being on the winner's side in many respects? And I don't mean that your life personally is always successful at every turn. I just mean that even, you know, we think about life in the West, and especially for, for Western white folk, I think, uh, like myself, uh, you know, we 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 are historically the, the the colonizers and the empire that spread around the world, and so uh, the temptation or the the tendency to to read ourselves into always uh, the God's people side of the story is that perhaps we miss some of the ways in which we are more like the oppressors than the oppressed in in these accounts and in these stories, right? And so um, we tend to I think a way of getting around that is we tend to spiritualize the oppression so that we two can be oppressed and liberated, and then we don't have to worry about the social and political implications of some of these things. Uh, so there are some challenges there to navigate, and that might be worth you reflecting on. What does it mean for you uh, to read the story maybe as one who's not oppressed but who's privileged, um, if that's you? And how might that challenge your reading of the biblical story? Um, all right, so so I want to move to our, to, to our other conversation as well. Um, and that's around the idea of sin. Um, and so let me briefly sort of describe the way that sin is framed up in the biblical story. 
and then a couple of different ways of understanding it and how it functions and how that might relate to our conversation around social justice. So firstly, we could, we, I mean, sin is a funny word, isn't it? Because it carries such deep loading for so many people. Um, and it's often used as a battering ram, uh, you dirty sinner, or you're just a depraved sinner, who, you know, who God, sort of God's wrath is turned towards. So I want to kind of, I want to leave all that to the side for now. And and think instead about the overall kind of biblical narrative and what it's offering us in terms of the human experience. And so, in a very simplified sense, um, the biblical story is offering uh, two visions of life. One is to live in such a way that fosters personal and communal flourishing, grounded in love of God, others, self, and creation. And then the other is in which we live in such a way that we cause harm and we disrupt relationship and harmony with God, others, self, and creation. Now, of course, it's not as simple as, you know, you either live one way or the other and you're either someone who always acts towards personal and communal flourishing and love or you're someone who always acts in, in towards harm. But there's this idea that this choice is constantly being put before us in our life. Do I want to choose harm or flourishing in this moment? And so that's kind of this way of thinking about living into this idea of, of goodness and, and the image of God and, and flourishing, or of leaning towards sin as, as a harmful way of being in the world. And that's why sin then is seen as a problem, because it harms, right? Now, it's, it's not some kind of weird, um, at least my, my understanding of the most helpful way of thinking about sin is not just this big weird list of things that are prohibited. It's about when we participate in harmful ways of being in the world. Now, given that, one of the things we tend to do, especially perhaps when we've just made it a big list of prohibitive things, you know, in the West too, I think, is to primarily speak of sin as individualized and personal, right? So sin is that which you've personally done to to either transgress against the list of naughty things uh, or or even in that broader definition to act in harmful ways you know and we can do that we can act personally and individually in ways that are deeply harmful you know hatred and murder and so on these are these are choices that that we make as human beings that lead us down the pathway of harming others rather than towards flourishing and love and and what the, the hebrew worldview would call shalom right and so if personal sin if sin is always thought of in these kind of terms, in this in this sense of personal, then the solution to this is individual salvation, and that this individual salvation puts you right with God, sets you on the course toward heaven, and also then you on this life of personal transformation, personal change, personal responsibility, right? And so that's perhaps that's why, in, in many respects, the the Protestant and in particular the evangelical tradition has tended to veer away from conversations around social justice because the emphasis is on personal sin, personal responsibility, personal change, personal transformation, and so on. Um, but the biblical narrative, when we look at it, is not entirely focused on personal sin in the way that many you know, Christians are, are told to think about it now. In fact, what we see really early on in the story is the way that sin moves from the personal to the structural. And the solution to the structural is not so easily found at the level of the individual or the personal, right? So in the, in the story, you know, it's sin that starts with Adam and Eve and the eating of the apple and this kind of, you know, very um, primeval mythological prehistory. Uh, you have Adam and Eve eating the, eating the fruit from the tree. Uh, but then 
um, you have Cain, you have their children, Cain and Abel, and Cain um, murders his brother, right? So the story is already starting to spiral, but it keeps spiraling outwards till we land in this story of, of the Exodus and in the nation of Egypt. And here we've got a nation that is building its entire empire at a structural and systemic level on slavery and oppression. So now we've gotten, we've gotten well past kind of the personal and the individual here to an entire structural system. And so if you're in a structural system that is built on slavery and oppression, then change needs to take place not just at the level of the personal, but also at the level of the structural and systemic, right? And so you, you might say to an Egyptian slave um, owner, hey, you shouldn't have a slave. You need to make a change personally in your life. Uh, and that might bring about, I don't know, that might not be possible for them because of the structure or they might not deem that to be possible for them because of the structure of the system itself that relies on those slaves doing the work. Uh, or in this case where the slaves aren't necessarily personally owned by all these families, but are being used by the empire for mass conscripted labor. Well, there's no personal kind of uh, change in the hearts of either the slavers or the slaves that's, that can change that. You can't, you can't go to the slaves either and say, hey, have you tried taking some personal responsibility to turn your situation around? You know, uh, Because there are structural and systemic things going on that make that impossible. So, so Egypt becomes one of the main images of structural sin and oppression in the Old Testament. And the other is, is Babylon, which is where they're gathering the story from much later on. And Babylon is this empire that's come conquering through, wiped them out, and and demands that they perform and behave and and are assimilated and so on. And so Babylon, you know, um, even in the New Testament, when they want to speak about the evils of the Roman Empire, which is the New Testament's big bogey, um, then Babylon is often used as the metaphor for Rome. That's uh, a way of talking about Rome without talking about Rome. Um, and so Babylon becomes another image of what happens when harmful ways of being find their way into the structures of a society. Babylon crushes, Babylon eliminates, oppresses, captures, enslaves. And it's built on the giant ego of its narcissistic leader, you know, who demands that others bow down to a statue of himself. So just as in Egypt, you, you can't walk up to a Jewish captive in Babylon and say, hey, have you tried taking you know, personal responsibility for changing your situation? Have you tried not being so lazy or, or whatever it might be, you know, the, have you just tried giving your life to Jesus, even if Jesus hasn't turned up yet? Um, that's not going to deal with the wider systemic problem that they're facing. And so these two images, Egypt and Babylon, serve as these biblical uh, symbols to us in the here and now. To say that we can't just talk about sin or the way we harm one another at a personal level. We also need to pay attention to the ways in which communities and societies are structured and how that this can lead to cycles of oppression and poverty and injustice and so on. And then if, going back to our first, where we started, if the Christian God and the Christian faith are about participating in liberation and hearing the cry of the oppressed, right? then it's not enough to just focus on the personal. Although that's still really important, we must also think about how our faith causes us to challenge the systems and structures that cause suffering. So this means... This, this leads us to our conversation, right? I'm talking about social justice. And when we start to talk about social justice, I guess we're talking about both of those things. We're talking about the personal and the systemic. So we're talking, yes, about maybe giving food to the hungry, right? Or making space in the community for someone who would otherwise, or in many cases, is marginalized or ostracized. Maybe someone who's gay or trans or whatever it might be, right? Um, or helping someone who's in desperate need 
um, in in your community. You know, that can be an act of social justice on acting on behalf of those who need um, support, help, love, uh, inclusion, and liberation. But we also have to ask the bigger questions. We have to say, okay, why were they hungry in the first place, right? Or why were they excluded in the first place? What's going on here in the systems and the structures that have led to the suffering and oppression of these people? And how do we actually challenge and transform the systems, not just focused at the level of the personal? Um, now, the encouragement or, the, or the, the, the challenge here is to not land simply in one camp or the other, to only ever talk about the systemic, structural, and political, which means that essentially uh, faith gets turned into politics, right? And I'm not saying that. But the other thing that we much more often do, I think, is, is focus just at the level of the personal and say that faith has nothing to do with the systemic and the structural. And, and instead, those two things actually need to help each other. The personal helps us to take personal responsibility for the big things that we're talking about. You know, if all we do is talk about the structures and systems, then we can, in fact, sometimes we can um, use that as an excuse not to act personally when we could actually help somebody who's right in front of us. Right? So, so we can't use just the language of we've got to deal with the structures and systems to avoid the act of the everyday personal um, exercise of liberation and justice. But similarly, we can't just say, hey, we're just going to focus on the one person without paying attention to the broader so structures and systems. The way that sin has found its way, if you like, harmful ways of being, have found their way into the very structures of our society and the way that certain people experience life within the kind of societies that we have built. And so there's this ongoing movement between the personal and the structural. And I think, you know, we see this tension kind of playing out um, in the church, I think, in society and politics and all of that kind of stuff. This, this, um, this tension between the personal and the structural, this temptation to land on one at the exclusion of the other. And so instead here in these stories and in the biblical narrative, the God who hears the cry of the oppressed we find this mixture of personal stories and structural stories. We find God acting in individuals' lives, but we also find God acting to liberate people from structures of oppression. And so as we think about uh, a theology of social justice and even as we move towards thinking about Jesus, which we're going to explore in the next episode, now these are, this is the kind of tension I want us to keep in mind. And I think that gets really important when we come to talk about Jesus. Because even when Jesus uses the term, or, or when the New Testament, for example, uses the term salvation or save, often if you've, if you've found yourself within the, the sort of broader evangelical or Protestant tradition, salvation, we immediately think about being personally saved from sin so that we can be reconciled with God and, and go to heaven one day. But uh, salvation is already an idea in the scriptures. It's all through the Old Testament. And salvation often is used to refer to the liberation of the people from the structures of oppression that they found themselves under. And so when that term, salvation, pops up in the New Testament, we've got to keep that in mind in the context so that when they're using that term, we don't turn it into something else, uh, but that we actually allow it to speak from the story that it's found within. That story gives those terms their definitions. Uh, redemption itself was a, was a metaphor and a symbol that was, you know, you, you would pay money to redeem a slave. Right, So when we even talk about redemption, we're talking about themes of liberation and justice. So, as I say, in the next episode, we're going to talk about Jesus, justice, and the kingdom of God. That's kingdom without a G. Uh, 
uh, I'm going to talk about the way in which the kingdom in particular in the New Testament is so different, uh, upside down and subversive, that kingdom is not even really necessarily the most helpful word to help us understand what's going on there. And, uh, and so we're going to talk about Jesus and justice and the way in which justice fits within the, the vision that Jesus has for his life ministry and for the church. Uh, and we're going to see where that takes us. So thanks for tuning in. I hope that's made some sense. I bet it has. I hope it has. See you next time.